Tonight we're moving into chapter 55 of Isaiah, and what we have in Isaiah 55 is really an invitation. It's a call, and that call comes out very clearly throughout the whole chapter because there are several verbs that have that kind of uh, importance, a seriousness to them, an urgency to them. Come, seek, find. So this is an invitation, and I think it's important that we interpret these passages from Isaiah in the larger context, especially in light of chapter 53 that we looked at a little while ago, because chapter 53 is the revelation of the suffering servant, how that through this chosen servant of God, he would come and he would lay down his life for the sake of God's people. And through his suffering, God's people would be forgiven. They would be healed in a spiritual sense, being made right with their God, which is incredibly significant when you think about how far off Israel was. Just like Isaiah 53, 6 says, we were all like sheep and we had gone astray. So in the history of Israel as a nation, they were like wandering sheep, weren't they? They were always looking to this God or that God, looking to their neighbors, the Canaanites, and following in their footsteps. And they were wayward sheep. And God punished them. He chastised them and, and sent them into exile in Babylon. And so they were very far from God, not only spiritually, but that was even expressed physically in them being far away from Jerusalem, the city of God. So they're far from God. And in Isaiah 53, we see God's plan to reconcile them through a suffering servant, to forgive their sins through one that he has appointed. But chapter 55 now puts the response back to the people of here is what the Lord's servant will do. He, he will come and lay down his life. But there is a call to respond to that message. There's a call to trust. There's a call to believe. There's a call to turn. There's a call to come and to come and sit at the Lord's banquet table and enjoy this feast that has been laid out for them. And that's the image of chapter 55 is an invitation to come, to come and enjoy the Lord's benefits. And so it really is an invitation to life. And so I've try to make the points from this chapter kind of revolve around this idea of coming. So the first point is come, eat and drink. Come, eat and drink. And this comes from the first few verses of Isaiah 55. And in the first verse, we see the image of provision. I say here bread, even though bread isn't specifically mentioned until verse two, but I I'm using this in the general sense of provision. Verse 1 mentions water, it mentions milk, it mentions wine, it mentions all these blessings, but it is a call to come and enjoy these blessings. And verse 1 highlights that these blessings from God are a gift. They're freely given from God. And it becomes a very great picture of salvation in Christ. Verse 1, it says, Come, all you who are thirsty... Come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money 
and without cost. And so there's an emphasis in that verse on this, this bountiful provision from the Lord being available to everyone regardless of how wealthy they are, whether you're poor or not. And of course, this is a metaphor, right? The milk, water, wine, bread in verse 2, this is all a metaphor for our spiritual relationship with God. And spiritually speaking, we are all poor, aren't we? We are all in complete abject poverty when it comes to our spiritual condition, which is why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They recognize that poverty. And so here is an, an invitation, a call to come and to respond. And it's open to, to everyone. It's freely given. You don't have to have a certain amount of righteousness in order to come and partake of these benefits because it's freely given. I want to read for you something from a commentary by Alec Motyer on, the, on this first verse, because I thought it was, it was really insightful and, and reminds us of some important things. He says about verse 1, Each come, that is the verb come, highlights a distinct aspect of what is offered. Come to the waters highlights the existence of need and the adequacy of the provision of water for the thirsty. You who have no money, and the one who has no money come, highlights the poverty of the needy one. This is a purchase which is somehow free to the purchaser. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he mentions the word buy, purchase, but somehow it's free. Buy, but there's no cost. So poverty is no barrier. Indeed, the person with no money is a welcome customer who will eat according to need. Thirdly, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost, highlights the richness, not just water, but wine and milk, as well as the freeness of the commodity. Yet, alongside this emphasis on freeness, the verb buy is repeated. The thought of purchase is not set aside. He says, this is no soup kitchen, even if the clients are beggars, there is a purchase and a price, though it is not theirs to pay. So there's something to be bought, but they can come and buy it freely. So there's a price that has to be paid, but they're not the ones that have to pay it. They bring their poverty to a transaction already completed in light of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So they bring their poverty to a transaction already completed. He says, this is another allusion to the work of the servant. The feast is one of love and forgiveness. His is the price. Ours is the freeness. His is the price. Ours is the freeness. So there's still buying going on, but the money doesn't come from us. The purchase has been paid by Christ as the suffering servant. And so it's bread that is freely given. And then in verse 2, we see that this is bread that truly satisfies. This is bread that truly satisfies. Verse 2, he says, Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Again, we have to interpret this Symbolically, metaphorically, what have the people of Israel been feeding on? Spiritually speaking, they've been, they've been feeding on paganism, 
right? They've been feeding on paganism, idolatry, false worship, the worship of the Canaanites, and it does not satisfy because it's not real bread. It's not genuine. And so in this, there is a call to come and eat that which is genuine. That is that which is truly from the Lord, that which can truly satisfy the hunger of their souls. And isn't this something what, like what Jesus does in the New Testament? When he comes to the woman at the well and he says, if you drink this water from the well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. Or in John 8, when he says, I'm the bread of life. The one who feeds on me will never be hungry again. In other words, Jesus was, I think, referring to this concept, whether Isaiah 55 verse 2 was in his mind or not, the concept is the same. And that is that when you come to the Lord, you find that which is truly satisfying to your soul. It's so much more than what the world has to offer. And in the world today, and really for throughout the history of humankind, we've been looking for that which satisfies. We look for it in food. We look for it in drink. We look for it in the pleasures of life. We look for it in just making our bodies feel good. We look for it in leisure. We look for it in work, in wealth, in fame, power, whatever it is. We've been looking for satisfaction in all of these places, and it really doesn't satisfy. Only in God, in Christ, do we find the bread that truly satisfies. And so come, eat and drink is the invitation, because through the suffering servant, the banquet table has been set. So come, eat and drink. And then the emphasis in verses three through five is come and live. Come and live. And the way to live is by responding to the word of the Lord. Listen to his word. Listen to the word of the Lord and find life. Verse three says, give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. So there's an emphasis in this passage on the word of God, on the word of the Lord. And, and we see that emphasis all the way throughout the scriptures, that the person who relates rightly to the Lord is the person who responds to the word of the Lord. So we see in Genesis 15, 6, very early description of justification by faith when it says that God promised Abraham and Abraham believed, right? So here's the word of the Lord. Abraham believed that promise, and it says that that was credited, imputed to him as righteousness. So responding to the word of the Lord, we read in the New Testament that there is no right relationship with the Lord apart from the gospel, which is the message, the word about Christ. So listen to the Lord's word. Come to me, give ear so that you may live. And then there is a call to trust to trust what the Lord has promised in his covenant. Trust the Lord's covenant. In the rest of verse number three, he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. There is there's some debate in the commentaries about what exactly this everlasting covenant is. Is it the Davidic covenant? Because he mentions that promise that he made to David here in verse three and also in the next verse in verse four. So is he talking about 
the Davidic covenant proper? Well, it seems to be more than just that because he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, plural. Now, I think the Davidic covenant is related to and an, an, an integral part of this covenant that God is making with his people, but it is not to be identified with the Davidic covenant, if that makes sense. So this everlasting covenant that God is going to make with his people does not equal the Davidic covenant, but the Davidic covenant is a part of it. What is the Davidic covenant? Second Samuel 7, God says to David, I'm going to promise you, David, that you will always have someone from your, of your descendants who will rule on your throne. That covenant that God made with David is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, isn't it? The son of David. The, the one who fulfills Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will come and he will rule on David's throne. So this, this coming child, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, he is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But him, that ultimate king in the line of David, he makes a new covenant with God's people, doesn't he? So the Davidic covenant is essential to the making of the new covenant. And I think what is in view here is probably the new covenant because we find the new covenant starting to unfold and be described in these latter prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And so here he's talking about coming back from the exile and God is going to make a new covenant with them. And it's going to be built on and accomplished through the promises he made to David in the Davidic covenant. But it's going to be an everlasting covenant of grace that God makes with his people. And his promises to David also serve as evidence and witness of what God is going to do for his people. So there's an invitation there to trust that. Trust in what the Lord has promised, what he said he will do. And as you trust in that covenant, Remember what God has promised to David. See, I have made him, that is David, a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. I think that there's probably, in verse 4, a backward look as well as a forward look. There's a backward look in the sense that David was the foundation of that Davidic covenant. He was the original David, but he wasn't a witness or a commander of the peoples, plural. What do peoples, plural, refer to in scripture in the Old Testament? Generally speaking, it's the nations. So David was ruler and commander over the Israelite people. But he could not rightly be said, at least historically speaking, of a commander of the nations. But the later David will be, won't he? So the later David, who is Jesus, the son of David, he will be a ruler of the peoples, a ruler of the nations. And so I think there's a backward look to the promises God made to David, but there's also a forward look to a new and later David who is coming and who will bring in this new covenant. 
to which not only the Jews will come, but also the nations will come. And so hope, hope in the Lord's promises. Again, centers around the Lord's word, doesn't it? Listen to his word. This is how you have life, is by listening to the word of the Lord and trusting in his word. And that's where your hope is to be found. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. This is forward-looking. This is after they come home from exile, and I think even beyond that, to the coming kingdom of Christ, that there will be a gathering of peoples, not just, Gen- not just Jews, but the nations, Gentiles as well, coming, and there being one king, one shepherd, over the whole fold of God. And this is a promise, something that they can look forward to in what God is going to do. They can put their hope in that. And for us, this is still future. This is still future that God is going to draw the nations. So trust and hope in what the Lord is going to do. Then we see in verses 6 and 7, a call to seek. Come and seek the Lord. And the emphasis in verses 6 and 7 is on seeking the Lord, forsaking sin, and returning to him. So come and seek. In verse 6, there's an emphasis on the urgency to seek the Lord. Seek him now is the urgency of verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. The Lord is issuing a call, an invitation. And this call, this invitation, it depends on the mercy of the Lord. It depends on the long-suffering of the Lord. And we know from the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, that while the Lord is compassionate and he is merciful and he is long-suffering towards sinners, that that patience with sinners does not go on forever, does it? There is a point in time in which the Lord will no longer be patient with sinners, but he will come and he will judge sinners. So Peter refers to this in Second Peter 3 when he says, he's talking about the Lord's coming, that is the coming of Jesus Christ. And he says, there are people who doubt the coming of the Lord and they say, where is the promise of his coming? He said he was coming, where is he? And Peter says, the Lord's not being slow. The Lord's not late. Uh, the Lord's calendar is not off. But right now is an opportunity for repentance. The Lord right now, Second Peter 3, 9, is calling people to repent. He is long-suffering. But then he says in Second Peter 3, 10, but the day of the Lord will come. So right now there is opportunity. There's an open door for repentance, but there is a judgment coming. So there's an urgency to when you hear the word of the Lord, to respond to that word. And I think we, you know, for most of us in this room, we, we understand and we, we believe that there is a divine call, right? There is, there is an efficacious divine call that brings about a new birth, a regeneration in the heart of a person. That, that's, that's from God. That is totally divine. There's no human synergism with that at all. It is totally one-sided in God. He grants new birth. He effectually calls. But that truth never takes away 
when the scriptures call for someone to respond to that message, does it? So we believe that there is a divine work that is necessary to respond, but that doesn't lessen or make unimportant at all when the scriptures say, come and believe and trust, repent. Those, those are things that the Bible calls us to. And that, that door of opportunity, there is an urgency that needs to be taken when that door of opportunity is there. I think sometimes people mistakenly think the Lord's always going to be there. I can call on him whenever I want. You don't know what's going to happen later today. You may not have a life later today. You may not have a life tomorrow. Who's to say that down the road, your heart will be more softened than it is today? You can't gamble on anything future. Here, this is the time, right? Today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord now while he may be found. And then there, in verse 7, there's a call that really could dis- be described as repentance. So there's, there's trust. There's also the other side of the c- coin of conversion, which is repentance. And Isaiah describes it as a forsaking and a returning. A forsaking and a returning. He says in verse number 7, Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. So there is, there is a forsaking, a turning from that which is opposed to God and his word. And there is a returning to the Lord. So he says in the last part of verse 7, let the wicked forsake their ways and let them turn, return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. So verse 6 expresses the urgency, seek the Lord while he may be found. And verse 7 expresses the proper response to the word of the Lord. And that is to turn and to trust. So come and seek. And then the passage ends with a call for us to consider, to think. Come and consider, verses 8 through 13. And in verses 8 and 9, he calls us to consider the greatness of God. Consider the greatness of God. In verse 8, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my, my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Consider the greatness of God. One commentator puts it this way. He says, these verses lay open the abyss, the chasm between God and the people. This abyss was first described by Isaiah in chapter 6 when the holiness of God revealed to him the unholiness of Israel. This deadly abyss between themselves and God that can, that can be bridged only by their responding with their whole being to God's offer of forgiveness through the suffering servant. So there is this chasm that lay between us and God. It's an uncrossable chasm. It's an unfathomable chasm. 
And many times we think of verse 8 and 9 in terms of understanding, of comprehension. And we think of, there's, we think of it in terms of comprehension in the sense of we're so small, we're so finite, it's impossible for us to fully understand or comprehend God and his thoughts and his, his infinite wisdom. And that's definitely a part of what's involved here. But given the context of Isaiah 55, and especially right on the heels of a call to turn and find forgiveness, I think there's also not only a chasm of comprehension, but also an ethical chasm, a moral chasm that separates us from God. A chasm kind of like what Paul describes in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. So Isaiah is calling on them not only to consider how great the difference between their understanding and God's infinite understanding, he's also calling on them to consider the gap between their holiness and God's holiness. Their wickedness and God's holiness and the fact that that chasm can only be bridged by a merciful God and a suffering servant. Stop and consider that. Consider the greatness of God, not only in terms of his wisdom, but also in terms of his holiness, his righteousness. And then verses 10 and 11 call us to consider the certainty of the Lord's word. Consider the certainty of the Lord's word. In verse 10, he uses an illustration from nature. He says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So that's a comparison. So also is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So when the water comes, whether it be falling rain or snow that melts, that water goes and spreads out, seeks its own level, right? It goes down into the the creeks and the rivers and flows down and it waters and it brings refreshment to the land and and brings crops. So that water comes and it, it accomplishes its purpose. It doesn't fall to no purpose. It doesn't fall for nothing is the idea. So also with the word of the Lord. And by this word, I don't think that God that this passage necessarily is referring to all of the written scriptures per se. I think probably it's a little bit more tightly defined in the sense of the plans and the purposes of the Lord. That when God declares that he will do something, he will do it and it will not fail. And especially in the larger context of the second half of Isaiah with the, the fact that God has said, I'm going to call a man, he's going to fulfill my purpose, and he is going to set out a decree so my people can go home. That's Cyrus, right? God's going to call Cyrus. He's going to allow my people to go home. God is saying this in advance, and what he's saying here is, my word, my plans, when I declare something in advance, it will happen. It's certain. You can bank on the Lord's word. It will accomplish its effect. So consider the certainty of the Lord's word. And then he ends with a, an incredibly hopeful picture 
of the renewal of the Lord's creation. In verse 12, he talks about the joy that they will experience leaving Babylon and coming home. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. In the context, it seems that the reference is probably to going out of Babylon and coming home to Jerusalem. You're going to go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. In other words, what a joyous time when the Lord delivers his people. And again, I mentioned this last week, but we see these images merge in Isaiah where we move from near future to far future. Here there seems to be in verse 12, near future, you're going to be joyful and exuberant when you leave Babylon and come home to Jerusalem. But then it kind of merges into a new heavens and new earth in verse 13. When he says, instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Verse 13 seems to be referring to a, an uncursed world. What was one of the curses that came on Adam and Eve in the garden, specifically to Adam? Because you've done this, you're going to work now by the sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles, right? You're going to have to work and, and manage these thorns and thistles as you seek to produce food for you and your family. So this is like, verse 13 is like a reversal of that. No more thorns, no more thistles, no more briars. This is now where peaceful vegetation will grow. And this, is, will, this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign. That's what all this is for, isn't it? For the glory of God. That is the highest ultimate aim for everything that God does, is the Lord's renown, his glory. So he's saving a people. He's sending a servant to suffer for them. He's calling a people. And as God calls a people home from Babylon back to Jerusalem, he doesn't want to just call them back physically, geographically. He wants to call them back spiritually and righteously. So that when they come home, they're not only a renewed people in terms of hope of leaving exile and coming back home, they're also a renewed people from the inside out of being transformed by the grace of God and now a new covenant people who seek to do the Lord's will and, and live for his glory. And so in this Old Testament passage, there's much gospel Christian truth, isn't there? I mean, we can go back to the first part of the chapter and we can see that in the gospel, in that message, it is free, isn't it? It's, there, there's a free offer there to come and to believe and to eat of the bread of life. But there was a cost. There was a cost. But we may come and partake of it without us paying that cost because it's been paid. We can see the importance of listening to and trusting the word of the Lord in this passage. That's still ongoing today, isn't it? We still need to listen to and, and to put our hope and trust in the word of the Lord. We can see the promises that God makes in this passage, promises, some of them that are still unfolding and still future, even for us. So we have much to hope in. And so I think there's much in this passage that can directly apply to our situation as Christians. And we are the beneficiaries of this new covenant. 
that I think is referred to in this passage, this everlasting covenant. We're Gentiles, we're of the peoples, we're of the nations, and we've been called to be a part of this covenant. And that's God's plan, his purpose. 